about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with the linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering, to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law, so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood, and with his finger, sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people, and take its blood behind the curtain, and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger, seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites.
Hi, my name's Laura, and I'm going to be reading our second reading from Hebrews chapter 9, the whole thing. Uh, That's on page 972 or 1711 on the large print Bibles. Hebrews chapter 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is only in force when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is still living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves, together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Well, good evening. My name is Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. Great to be with you. And wow, what a big passage with lots of different things happening. We're not going to get to the whole passage, um, but we are going to get to a number of the things happening. Hands down, all those who've got a guilty conscience. Ah, some people were just a little bit quick. Um, the truth is, most of us have had a guilty conscience at some stage in our lives, and perhaps it's something that's actually plagued you, a guilty conscience that you feel shameful about something that you've done at some stage. I remember a particular incident in my life which plagued me for about 20 years. Um, when I was about eight years old, I was living with another family, and um, this family was very generous towards me, uh, very kind, um, and I lived in the same room as some of the brothers in this family, and we, we shared toys and we shared experiences together. But there was this magnet. It was quite a big magnet, and you could pull it apart and play with it. And there was this magnet, and I really liked this magnet. Well, needless to say, by the end of that year, they went somewhere else, and I never met them again, and I had a magnet. I had stolen the magnet um, off these guys, um, off these brothers. And I can just remember the total shame of it all. Just recognising that I, I had stolen something off these people who'd been so kind to me and so generous. And that there was no way I could actually give the magnet back. In fact, I'd, I never knew where they went and so I had no sense of how I could even say sorry. And even though it was such a small thing, my heart was just so shamed and I felt really, really guilty. And my conscience was just very tender about the whole thing. And as I mentioned, it took me at least 20 years to kind of deal with it in my own heart because I felt so bad about those things. Now, perhaps you've had a similar experience. Maybe it's other kinds of things that you've been involved in where you're deeply shamed and deeply feeling guilty uh, for the various things that you've done uh, in the past or at different times. Um, this passage tonight addresses the issue of our consciences and helps us deal with them. And effectively what it says is, if you want to deal with your conscience, look at Jesus. Uh, but we're going to unpack that a little bit more and think about how that actually works uh, within this passage. Um, as we mentioned a little bit earlier on, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews and in this section, which runs from about chapter 8 through to chapter 10, uh, the author of, he of Hebrews is launched into a, a discussion about Jesus Christ and about how he's superior as the heavenly high priest. He's told us how a lot of things about the old covenant and he's introduced to us the new covenant. Um, in chapters 9 and 10 in particular, he's dealing with uh, Jesus' sacrifice for sins and how it's much better than the offerings that were made in the Old Covenant. Um, and he talks about the blood of the Old Covenant and the blood of Jesus Christ uh, that cleanses us and deals with our sins and actually deals with our guilty consciences. 
Um, if we kind of wanted to break things up, the verse 10 verses are, are talking largely about the Old Covenant and the tabernacle. Um, it doesn't actually go into huge amounts of details, just mentions a number of things there. Uh, verses 11 to 28 of chapter 9, think about uh, the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. And then chapter 10, which we'll get to next week, thinks about Jesus' sacrifice and what that actually means. Tonight, I want to look at really the first 14 verses of this chapter. Um, in the first 10 verses, we're going to think about the tabernacle and the older period of history. But I want to also then come to verse 14, which looks at the whole idea of our consciences being cleansed. And so I want to work our way to there. So come with me to Hebrews chapter 9 and uh, verse 1. And what we find is in verse 1, uh, what we find in the first few verses here is the writer of the Hebrews is just setting some things out and helping us understand the old tabernacle. So in verse 1, he talks about the earthly sanctuary. In verse 2, he talks about the tabernacle and the holy place. Uh, in verses 3 to 5, he starts talking, uh, introducing us to the ideas of the holy of holies with the altar and the chest and the sacred relics and the carved cherubim and the mercy seat and the blood that was involved. In verse 6, he describes the priests entering into that outer tent. And then in verse 7, he describes the priest entering into the Holy of Holies um, that only happened once a year. And just to get some sense of what we're talking about, we had that uh, reading from Leviticus, which gave us some sense of what happened when a priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And really, there was a lot of preparation. Uh, what we understand is that the week beforehand, uh, before the Day of Atonement, the priest would often remove himself from other people uh, to make sure that he didn't come into contact with anything unclean. Uh, so that he wouldn't accidentally touch anything unclean. And then the night before the Day of the Atonement, he didn't go to bed. He'd stay up all night praying and reading. And then when he actually came to the day, he would bathe himself uh, head to toe. Uh, he would put on those special linen garments. Um, and then he would offer uh, animal sacrifices, sacrifices for himself, for the priests, uh, sacrifices for the whole people. And after that, he would continue to bathe himself, and this would all happen in front of the people. And so the people of Israel would come, and they would gather, and this was a very, very significant event in the whole calendar, because basically this was the Day of Atonement. This is the day in which sacrifices were offered for the sins of the past year. Now, as we've read, you can see that it, there was lots of blood involved and, and basically animals were sacrificed, lives were sacrificed instead of the lives of those who were following God at that time. But in this period of history, what we're seeing is the way God was relating to his people. And one of the things that strikes me about this is that God was very difficult to access in this sense. One priest, the high priest, once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. Now that's extremely significant because it puts a lot of uh, pressure, I guess if you could describe it as, on what was taking place in that one event. And yet, as we come to what the, Hebrews, uh, the writer of the Hebrews says, says about this, we discover that actually there's some flaws in it. 
See in verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration, or another word there is parable, for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. And so, while this was taking place, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, well, actually, it doesn't clear the worshipper. It's not as insignificant. It isn't, isn't something that God hadn't called them to do. But there's something else that needs to take place. And verse 13 make, kind of makes that clear for us. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those outward who are ceremony unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. And he's, not, he's suggesting that they're actually inward cleansing. There's something not quite there. Now, I think the bigger problem here actually is that the Day of the Atonement only happened once a year. And so what that meant is that five minutes after the atonement had been offered, if you stole a magnet, well, actually, you had to wait to next year for the next Day of Atonement. So in many ways, while this was significant and important and God had put this in place, it really foreshadowed something different. It foreshadowed what Jesus would do on the cross on our behalf. That looks both backwards and forward because these people acted in faith. But as we see as we move through the passage, it didn't quite deal with the conscience in the way that then Hebrews helps us understand. So in verse 11, But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, it is not part of creation. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremony unclean, sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean, just repeating what we've said before. So the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the reality of which the Old Testament sacrifices are a, are, are a shadow or anticipation of. The whole point of the book of Hebrews is to say that the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into the world is ending the present time that Hebrews is referring to, the old way of relating to God, and that there is a now a reformation taking place where Christ replaces the high priest and the temple and the blood and the animals and the food and drink rituals. That's the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. Jesus is our great high priest, but he's also our sacrifice. He stands in our place. It's his blood that matters. It's his blood that sets us free. It's his blood that gives us eternal redemption. And so the priest doesn't have to keep going back in and entering, uh, offering sacrifices. 
It's in that context we then read verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? I want to unpack that verse a little bit more and think through a little bit about the implications, uh, given what we've said already, for our consciences and the way that that all works. Um, You'll notice that the verse begins with how much more than the blood of Christ. Now, we've talked about that a little bit already, and we'll talk about that again next week. Um, And clearly, there is lots of blood involved uh, in this process. Um, And in verse 24, the same thought is picked up again, and this is what it says. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times. He doesn't keep offering himself over and over again. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus' blood has been shed for us. Jesus, the blood of Christ has been offered, which is far superior than the blood of bulls and goats and the other offerings that were given. He goes on to say something really unusual. He goes on to say, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God. Um, that, that term, eternal spirit, causes lots of confusion for people. And there are many, many articles uh, written about this. And as in, in the week as I discussed this with Matt Aroni, he said, you can't, can't avoid talking about this, Roger. You have to talk about it. It's like, okay, I have to talk about it. Um, to be honest with you, I think it's still a little bit confusing. Um, and so I've tried to think about how actually this works and what is actually going on here. And please, this is just an aside, and, and please come and talk to me afterwards if, if I'm confusing you further. But what is this eternal spirit? Some people are talking about it as kind of a human spirit. Some people talk about it in terms of Christ's own spirit. Is it the Holy Spirit? There's, there's a kind of uh, lots of questions that people raise around this. I wonder whether a way of looking at, at it is to kind of include all things in some ways. Um, there's a, there's a the, theologian called J.F. Torrance who talks about worship and talks about a Godward movement towards humans and a human movement towards God, and he puts it this way. Uh, there's a Godward human movement through the far, uh, from the Father through the Son in the Spirit, and so that's taking place there. And there's also a human Godward movement uh, to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. Now, if that all didn't make sense to you, just come and talk to me afterwards. I'm happy to keep chatting about it. Uh, But I just want to put that to the side for the moment and say that what's most significant here, I think, in terms of what we're talking about tonight anyway, and what's most intriguing here is how the writer says the blood of Jesus does something with our conscience that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, could never do. It purifies our conscience. Now, we've noticed before and already that the gifts and sacrifices offered before uh, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. 
So what is actually taking place here? How does this help with our our guilt and our shame and, and with the things that we face within ourselves? Well, before we actually get to unpacking that a little bit further, I want to take another step back and and just think about our context and the way we think about uh, the notion of conscience. Uh, Very often when we think about consciences, we think of the idea of uh, something in ourselves telling us whether something is wrong or right. Um, And so we end up with a guilty conscience when we do something wrong. Um, and we feel okay if our, if our conscience hasn't been triggered uh, when we do something else right. Um, and so our consciences we often think of as telling us something is guilty or shameful, um, and, and therefore we think about it in those uh, types of ways. Uh, one of the results of that is that we try to evolve, uh, often try to avoid feeling guilt or shame. Um, and so... Sometimes if we find ourselves in a position of feeling shamed or feeling guilty, we then want to do something about it. We want to actually approach that and try and deal with our conscience at that point. And so many, many people I've met through over the years are trying to address their conscience, their guilty feelings, their feelings of shame, by doing things. And so they might give away their money, they might go and help out on Christmas Day in a soup kitchen somewhere, they might... um, decide to be a good person in lots of different circumstances. They might decide to um, uh, actually go and work in a particular company because of they're wanting to somehow appease their conscience. Of course, there's, there's other kinds of ways that people try to appease their conscience, and some of them are much darker. Um, I guess there's an example of this taking place with religious ceremonies that take place around Easter in some countries where people are trying to appease their consciences, their guilt, their shame, by actually literally getting nailed to the cross and feeling the pain, as it were. And in some cases, and I realise this is not for everybody and not everybody's case, um, sometimes I've met people who are self-harming because of the guilt and the shame that they're feeling and they're trying to let it out, so to speak. And so our consciences often play a very significant role in our lives and and what we do. Now, because of that, I guess another observation I would make is that uh, very often, because shame and guilt and our consciences are so strong, um, we, we, we don't want to feel those things. And so we as a society, and sometimes we as Christians, uh, want to move the goalposts, so to speak, as to what is right or wrong and what makes us feel shame or guilt. And so suddenly things that were once upon a time uh, things that may not be right are no longer uh, like that. They're not wrong anymore. They're, they're fine so that someone doesn't have to feel uh, shame or guilt. And so I've seen many times people move the goalposts and actually the reason I know this is because I'm aware of it in myself. How many times have I sort of said, oh, well, actually, I'll just move the goalposts a little. I really didn't do anything wrong because I don't want to feel the shame and the guilt. Another observation before we start dealing with the verse a little bit further, and I'm just trying to hold these things in tension as we think about this, is that sometimes... Um, our shame and our guilt makes us very quiet people. Uh, what I mean by that is because we feel shame and before, because we feel guilt, 
we feel like we haven't got anything else to say to anybody else. We feel like it would be hypocritical to say anything to anybody else because we feel so guilty and ashamed of our own behaviour. And of course, sometimes that's absolutely right. We should be feeling ashamed and guilty of our behaviour, but actually it prevents us from engaging healthily with one another and challenging us to get challenging one another about the things that actually are not going right in our lives. And so shame and guilt can sometimes bind us up and actually make us quiet in our relationships with one another. Okay, well, coming back to this notion of conscience and starting to think about what Hebrews is saying, um, one of the other questions we need to answer is, where does our guilty conscience come from? Um, where does it, how does it arrive? How do we get a sense of what is right and wrong? Well, someone described some of our, our ways of dealing with conscience as coming from um, the tyranny of um, the group. Where a group or a particular culture says something is wrong or right, and then we feel ashamed because our culture... Uh, particularly a culture which says you honour your parents or you honour your uh, relatives, you honour your family in a certain way, and if you don't do the right thing by them, then you are shamed, you are guilty of shaming them. Um, there's the, kind of the tyranny of the group, and I've experienced this in lots of different ways, but one way, one way uh, I remember quite strongly is when I began work in a bathroom renovation company and uh, Friday afternoons, we would get together. And basically, uh, on Friday afternoons, it was beer and pornography. And I didn't, I didn't want anything to do with it. But the people in the group would shame me. They would say things like, do you really think you're better than us? And they'd make me feel guilty, if you like, for not participating uh, in that group activity. And surely you must have experienced this, uh, the shame of a group uh, shaming you or making you feel guilty about something particular. Of course, there's the other kind of guilt and shame that comes about as well um, as a result of our consciences, and that is to do with our kind of own internal struggle. Uh, perhaps uh, best represented in that uh, Shakespearean play Macbeth, where Macbeth kills Duncan and then... He thinks he hears this voice that says something, sleep no more, Macbeth does murder sleep. And without, throughout the play, you get the sense of this man who's absolutely tortured by his conscience because of something he has done wrong. Now, there's some thoughts about consciences and the way they work and trying to hold them together in this, in this tension as we come to this particular passage. But what I want to suggest to you is, in the midst of all that, we actually need to approach Hebrews with a Christian view of what conscience is about. It has some similarities to those other things that we're talking about, but I think we need to understand how the conscience works actually for the Christian. And Paul gives us an insight in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says this, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. 
And so on one hand, Paul is saying, well, I don't care about what a group of people might say or what a society might say about me, what some organisational structure might say about me and as to whether I'm guilty or whether I should feel shame. And at the same time, I don't actually trust my own conscience in the midst of this because I know how I can manipulate what I think is right and wrong. And I know how I can make something sound uh, good when it actually isn't. What I need is the Lord's judgment. And so what Paul's reminding us is that for a Christian, our consciences are linked to understanding what God would call us to do. Now, on one hand, that is tremendously freeing. Imagine being able to think about your group of friends or our culture and say, I don't really care what they think. It actually only matters what God thinks. You may think I'm guilty of doing something, but actually it really only matters what God thinks at this time. And the same thing for the internal struggle. Maybe you're dealing with something and you're feeling really guilty for it and actually you don't need to because you've been forgiven or it actually wasn't the wrong thing to do. The measure is what the Lord thinks, what the Lord judges things as. And so what it also does is then lift your eyes from your own internal struggle and what's going on for you and upwards to what Jesus is doing. And I think we need to school our consciences in what God has called us to do so that we understand where we do things wrong and where actually things don't matter. And so we can say without alarm, God judges me. But I know he will get it right. I know that he will say the right thing. So as we come back to verse 14, Jesus' blood and death on the cross, his offering of himself, his offering as an unblemished sacrifice, means that we can have our consciences cleansed from acts that lead to death. What it reminds us of is that on the cross, Christ paid the debt for every selfish desire we have, every thought, word or deed that we'll ever have. That we are no, And therefore what it means is that we no longer have to be afraid to, um, to own up to our own selfishness. We don't have to whitewash our thoughts and motives. We don't have to cover up our sins by blaming others or coming up with some self-atoning logic. You don't have to do acts of penance to make you feel, your conscience feel better. No, because of Jesus' blood and Jesus' death on the cross, your debt has been fully paid. Your punishment has been borne by another. There's another who stood in your place and took the condemnation that you deserve, shed his blood for you. And therefore, you never, never need to live in hiding because this wonderful and beautiful forgiving grace welcomes you out of darkness, lifts the burden of guilt, and fear and shame off your shoulders. 
because he cleanses your conscience in the act of what he does in dying on the cross and shedding his blood. And so we're invited to confess our sins, to repent, to recognize what we've done wrong before God, but also to receive the forgiveness that we find in the death of Jesus and to let him cleanse our consciences so that we might be free. That's just a beautiful, beautiful gift of grace that we are given at that point. But did you notice there's something else that this verse says as a result? God cleanses us out from our consciences from acts that lead us to death so that we might serve the living God. When we ask God the Father to accept us, to adopt us, to unite us, not on the basis of our performance or our moral efforts, but because of Christ's what Christ has done, what happens is we receive the relationship of God as a gift. And it's not based on our past, present or future attainments, but on what Christ has done in his death on the cross. And so we don't do things in order to somehow prove ourselves to Jesus, to somehow atone for the things that we have done wrong. No, opposite to that, it's in light of Jesus' death for us and his shedding of his blood that we serve the living God. And we come in, serve, in serving him out of a completely different, with a complete freedom. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, put it this way, and it's kind of old language, but I think it sums up uh, what we're getting at here this evening. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. To see the law of Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, transforms a slave into a child and a duty into choice. And a duty into choice. Our high priest, Jesus, has entered into the most holy place in the heavens. He's purified our consciences from dead works and false religion and sin that we might serve him. We have a great eternal inheritance and it's secure because of the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed, both now and forevermore. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.